Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest this week is Eugene Grace Wirtz, who was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated to the United States at the age of six. As she puts it, she grew up not in America, but Korean America. She was inspired to write Everything Belongs to Us after hearing stories about her father's time at Seoul National University, the school depicted in the novel. Many people don't know how repressive South Korean society was in the 1970s. In her father's day, the campus was often closed due to widespread student protests and unrest. Writing this novel gave her a new framework for understanding her parents' generation as well as her own immigration story. Everything Belongs to Us is a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Grace Words. Grace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's, it's great to have you. And you've written a great book. It's your first novel. It is. Is there this feeling like, I can do it now? Like, did you ever worry, like, okay, am I going to finish this thing? Is it going to happen? Oh, I worried about it constantly because this was actually the second novel that I wrote, the first novel that I was able to sell and get published. But the first novel was like, you know, squeezing blood out of a stone. That was a terrible experience. And then this novel, um, the beginning of it felt very um, uncomfortable also because there was so much research that I had to get under my belt. And I think I had to reach like a critical mass of confidence um, and finding a way to find my historical voice. And so the on-ramp for this novel, Everything Belongs to Us, was quite um, tough. And then once I got going, it seemed to come together very quickly. So um, it took a while to find the confidence, but once I found the confidence, I thought, okay, no, I can do this. And then after I finished this novel, um, you think, okay, if I did it once, maybe I could do it again. That's where I am currently in my mental writerly state. Mental writerly state. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And you know, what I found, found fascinating is that you basically you're studying at Yale, right? Right. And you ask your dad, like, kind of in conversation, like, hey, maybe this is a connecting point. Well, what was college like for you? And he says, well, we didn't go to college, or we didn't go to class much because of all the, you know, the campus was shut down for riots and protests. And you're like, oh, that's it. And then you have, you're drawn to this period in, in South Korea's history, which was fairly autocratic, right? And you, And you're taken by this student protest movement and what's going on there. Yeah. And it shocked me because, you know, as I, as you said, I was 19 at the time and I thought I knew everything, you know, when you're 18, 19, you think, how can I possibly get more wise than I am now? And, um, and so when he mentioned that about South Korea's contemporary history or fairly contemporary history, I thought, Oh no, no, you're wrong. Um, you, you must be talking about North Korea (laughs) and you know, what arrogance for me to be, you know, correcting my father about the events of his own life, right? So I said, oh, no, are you talking about North Korea's political system and government? And he said, no, no, I'm talking about South Korea. South Korea also had um, what many people would consider a dictator during the 60s and 70s. And um, 
the country did not become a democracy until the eight, late 80s. And so having been born in Seoul in 1980 and having lived there until I was six and moved to the United States at 86, I thought, oh my gosh, so I was born under an authoritarian um, political system. I was not born into a democratic country. Um, and the democracy of South Korea is actually younger than I am. So um, that fascinated me on an intellectual level. And then culturally and emotionally, I thought, wow, you know, I really need to understand this in order to understand my own history and where I'm from. Yeah, I think most Americans wouldn't know that about Korea. I, I mean, that, that seems... Like a, a, something that eludes most people. Yeah, I think because um, in most American consciousnesses, South America, I'm sorry, South Korea has become um, sort of a safe foreign country to think about, even though um, it's attached to North Korea, which is in some ways the least safe uh, foreign countries to think about. But South Korea has become like a friendly face, you know, with the cars and the Samsung and Psy and K-beauty and K-drama, like it's become a foreign country that people feel that they can um, access in some ways. And to tack on this idea of authoritarianism and repression and um, political um, oppression to the extent that it was true in, in you know, just 30 or 40 years ago, um, it was a whiplash for me and I'm sure it would be whiplash to most Americans um, if they didn't know and were to find out. Yeah, you had this line early on uh, in the book where um, Ji-sun, right, Ji-sun's father, um, who was one of the main characters, her father, as she's involved in this protest movement, this elite kid who who's trying to be with the workers' protest movement, he basically, he holds up the dictator and says it's important, development uh, before democracy. Right, development first, democracy second, yep. Um, and so, and that was a message that I think was acceptable to um, many people in that generation because they were born into a country that was overtly poor. You know, my father and my mom, they were born in 53 and 54, which is um, in the immediate aftermath of the Korean War. And after the Korean War, um, both sides of the peninsula were just devastated and were among the most poor countries in the world, which is just wild to think about that now. I mean, Korea, South Korea now is among like the top 12, 15 most developed countries and most prosperous, prosperous countries in the world. But that was like 60 years ago that, you know, we're talking like scraping the bottle, bottom of the barrel in terms of international position. And so this generation having experienced poverty and hunger and war, um, heard a strong leader say, you know what, we're going to go for development. We're going to not become this, um, you know, bottom theater of the world. We're going to figure out how to pull ourselves up. Um, I think that resonated with this generation. And to hear democracy second, you know, I think that um, a portion of the population who were um either quite educated, as we're talking about the elite students um, at Seoul National University, or perhaps who are still experiencing poverty because they're working in the factories, um, felt that, oh no, we would like to have democracy first, not development first. Um, and so that's the friction point. But speaking with my parents now, um, they're part of a generation who in some ways appreciated the... Um, Park Chung-hee regime 
even though it was politically opp- oppressive, they credit him for having pulled them um, out of poverty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, see- I mean, you see this tension right today in international affairs. I, mean, I remember Shaman Paris saying, "You know, you have to modernize before you democratize." And for him, he was talking in the context of the Middle East. And for me, that is. Are your markets free, and how are women? How do women function in society? Because you know, I mean, it, it's just a tension between, you know, because sometimes democracy, sometimes democratizing can also pr- produce oppressive results if the if the people um, aren't interested in, in kind of universal rights of everyone in society. I mean, it's just a hard thing. Well, that's why I guess we're seeing that in retrospect with the Arab Spring. Like here in the West, we thought the Arab Spring was going to bring about um, new governments that were going to create more freedom uh, for the people. And in fact, we've seen it's opened up possibilities for even more um, politically oppressive opinion options than we thought was possible. So, um, but I guess, you know, from the point of view of um, the West, we're thinking um, in terms of inclusion, right? How many people can we bring up together? Or we're hoping, right? The, at least the liberal left is thinking that. And I think um, in systems where maybe people are trying to be more quote unquote pragmatic, um, they're willing to leave a portion of the population behind if they can get some sense of the majority to come up. Um, and I see that in, in our current administration with Trump, that um, people are willing to sacrifice some aspects of freedom or um, progress if only they can be given the promises of economic um, advancement, right? Or economic improvement in their lives. Did you, what was your major at Yale? I majored in English. I th- I would have thought history because I, I as I was reading this book, I was thinking, you know, she doesn't have many memories of Korea. Came over here pretty early. And you write so convincingly. I mean, you paint such a an in-depth portrait of a country that you didn't live in very long. I mean, you came over at age six, right? right? And, and of an era where you like weren't alive. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, this is, how did you do, I mean, how, what, what would make you undertake that project? Well, I was so intimidated by it and I didn't set out to do this um, as a historical fiction project. And what had happened was I was writing about um, Sunam, the male character, as like a 50-year-old man with teenage kids himself. And as I was showing some of this work to my friends or people in, in writing workshops, they just kept saying, you know, those those brief flashbacks that you're doing to his childhood or, and adolescence in Korea, we like that part. Let's hear more of that part. And so um, I was forced to abandon the project that I was working on and like rewind 30 years to this character's youth in Korea, which put the timeline into the 70s. And I thought, oh man, how am I going to do this? You know, like you said, I wasn't alive. Um, and and the history and politics of South Korea is not something that I felt was intuitively available to me the way that the history and politics of the U.S. are because I grew up here. But um, I was surprised to learn that my understanding of Korean culture, which was, I think, quite rich because I grew up in a very traditional um Korean family here in the States. And I often joke like I grew up in like this Korean American bubble. So I I grew up in like Korea America, not real mainstream America. And so um, the cultural 
aspects of how Koreans think and interact and what the dynamics would be, that felt very intuitive to me. And then in terms of memory, um, because I have memories of 80, 1980 to 86, um, I thought, let me, well, not 80, because I don't have memories of being an infant, but let's call it, you know, <laughs> 84 to 86, right? If I have memories from being four to six, I do have strong memories of those years. Um, I thought, let me just rewind like eight years or, you know, um, if I remember, um, for example, I remember driving around in my family's car with like, you know, nine relatives crammed into a hatchback, you know, and um, we'd be driving past the university and suddenly um, that overwhelming sense of like tear gas, like my ears and my nose and my eyes, like I remember the smell and I remember the relatives, you know, saying, oh, roll up the windows, roll up the windows, like, you know, the babies um, crying, you know, at the, at the time I probably wasn't a baby, I was probably four. Um, and my eyes were probably tearing. And um, at the time, I didn't understand what that was. And now when I read the history, I realize, oh, that was tear gas. That was the family, you know, driving around in Seoul, driving past the university. And this was just a normal aspect of life. It wasn't it wasn't a huge deal. And I was actually speaking to a reporter this week um, who was a Korean-American and probably about my age, and she had those same memories. And so um, I was able to just kind of rewind and think um, every year was so different because at that time the growth rate was close to 10%, if not higher. So if every rate, every year the growth rate is 10%, I know how much needs to be rewound. It needs to be rewound somewhat more severely than I would think each year should be rewound. And so that's how I was able to create like what I hoped was an authentic sense of the time and, and place. Well, create it indeed you do. And um, quite convincingly. Uh, now said that, um, that you started actually uh, Sunam, he was the character you said that actually you began with and in his, in your mind in his fifties and you go kind of retroactively back in his life. He's a guy that strikes me as kind of insecure and finds himself caught between two very strong women in a strange love triangle. And they're both, it's almost like he needs something from both of them that, that he finds himself, uh, you know, not in this, in trying to pledge for the secret society or not so much in, in his pursuit of, you know, the Korean dream, uh, but in these women. Yeah. And I love the idea of somebody like Sunam who, I absolutely agree with you is an insecure sort of passive person. Um, and I knew that readers would react to him in that way because that's the way that I intentionally created him. But the reason I did that, and it was a gamble because nobody wants to read necessarily about a passive character, but the reason I did that was because I wanted to give an idea of a baseline, right? Not everyone I'm, as a novelist, you want to write the most active dynamic story that you can, but not everyone. And in fact, it was the minority of people who were um, agitating for democracy or who were already benefiting from the huge economic progress that Korea had made in the 70s. So Chizan, as a daughter of this tycoon, you know, is this... Um, result of the the so-called miracle on the Han that's happening um, beginning in the 70s. And um, Namin, who's the other 
woman that you're um, referring to, she's someone that um, is both trying to reach that Korean dream, but also is um, caught in this dynamic with her sister, who is a factory worker, who despises being a factory worker, and who despises um, that socioeconomic position that she's forced into. And so um, I needed Sunam to be a character who could witness that and who could um, respond to that in a way that the average, I think, South Korean at the time might be uh, responding because um, many people in retrospect um, thank the the activists for what they did to bring about labor reform and democracy reform in the country but they were the fringe at that time right they were what we would consider like the crazy hippies and so um, I needed Tsunam to be the, the everyman who often does not make the most heroic decisions yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because um, Nami and, and Jisun, their their friendship, you know, develops as kids because they're at this sort of competitive school for girls, um, one poor, one very affluent. But uh, there's something that Nami says about Jisun that, like, she never, um, she could apologize so easily because she never basically felt shame, you know, that she had this kind of sense of herself that um she never kind of felt um indebted to anybody or which which for for a kind of confucian culture where honor and shame that seems remarkable yeah and and i think it's remarkable for me too and i appreciated that characteristic of chisan so chisan having been raised in affluence and privilege and extremely aware of that right because i assume that if you're quite wealthy you know it but if you're quite wealthy in a relatively poor country like south korea was in chisan's childhood in the 60s um you would be doubly conscious of that or i or at least she was and so um she wanted to apologize for her position and it was something that she didn't, she felt ashamed of her affluence in some ways, right? Um, and as you say, it was not something that she felt like she had to, um, she didn't have to feel it, she didn't have to hide the shame of it in the same way that Namin had to hide the shame of her poverty. And the reason why I became fascinated with that dynamic was because my mom um, is somebody that inspired the character of Namin for me. Um, she grew up in this town, Biari, which is um, a um, an iconic um, working class town in Korea. Like, I, I guess at the time, if you said you were from Biari, people would know exactly what that meant. And so my mom said to me, she would often not tell people that that's where she lived. She would choose like the neighboring town, which was not so um, notorious, right? And um she felt quite ashamed of being poor and she felt that that was a shame that she could not speak. Whereas Chizan um, was ashamed of being rich, but she wanted to vo vocally and actively um, bring that to the forefront. And I think in some ways, Namin um, can't forgive her for that, which is um, such a sticky dynamic, you know. Here is this... Um, woman, Chisan, and this girl who's trying desperately to make up for her privilege. Um, and Namin, on the other side, can't accept this um, apology or this, you know, quote unquote apology because she thinks, well, how dare you? How dare you speak about this when I can't speak about my shame, you know? Has your mom read the book? 
She has. What does she think? I think she feels quite thrilled about it. Um, I think she feels um, that in some ways that it's um, not her story because it's not um, technically autobiographical, but so much of the story is a reflection of the stories that she told me. And in no way could I have written this story without her help. Um, and so I overheard her saying um, to one of her friends at um, a launch event that I had, and her friend was jokingly saying to her, oh, you know, you'll have to write um, a book about your daughter to kind of make up or to get back at her because she wrote about you. Um, <laughs> the implication being that, you know, I had spilled some, you know, dark secrets. And my mom kind of smiled and said, no, no, you know, um, she told my story. So I don't feel like I need to... Um, get back at her and write my story in my own words. She she already told my story, so I I was quite moved by that. I thought that was um, um, a wonderful affirmation of the project that in some ways we we achieved together. That's beautiful. Um, so when you were at Yale, you I mean Yale is right one of the places that is known for secret mm. societies. And in fact, it was so interesting. I remember somebody remarking in the, when Bush and Kerry were running against each other that. We have two guys, that, uh, two white guys who went to Yale about the same time with the same grade point average and were part of the same secret society. I mean, what, like, what did, I was what, not what, aware what that they of... were both in the same secret society. I knew Bush was. I didn't know about Kerry. Yeah. I mean, they didn't go exactly the same time, but, but same era. I mean, a few years apart. But, you know, is, was there any of that sort of Yale secret society culture that shaped the book? Because you do, I mean, you do mention so, so much of it early on is the circle and, and people trying to get in this elite student group, which then probably will lead to an elite job future and sort of climbing the social and socioeconomic ladder. Yeah. So, um, when I got to Yale, I, it was sort of the culmination of my personal dream come true because as I said, I grew up in this like Korean American bubble and I, really was so curious about what mainstream America was like. And when I visited um, the campus at New Haven for the first time, um, there, you know, Yale is very progressive, um, very supportive of the arts and social justice and things like that. And that's very clear from the minute you step on campus. And so I instantly fell in love with it. If there's anything that I fell in love with, love at first sight, it has to be um, the environment at Yale. And so I really... Um, hoped to get into that environment. And when I did, I thought, oh, now I've made it. And it wasn't even um, an idea of socioeconomic climbing. It was a, a feeling of like personal freedom and agency. But um, what shocked me, I was probably a junior. This is how naive I was and how not clued in to American elitism um, and American class systems, you know, because I think as a young person, you might have the sense that America is wide open. You know, the American dream is something that is a trope that we're taught so early on. And um, Yale is a place that retroactively taught me about the American class system. And I wasn't aware of it at the time because, like I said, I was just so naive. I couldn't even see it. Um, and when I learned about the secret societies as a junior, I thought, wow, here I am at one of the most elite uh, learning institutions in the world, and there's yet another enclave of elitism. And um, elitism is something that I am fascinated with because it's so um, sought after and yet 
just a small percentage, the tiniest fraction of the 1% get to ever attain it. Um, and what do the rest of the 99 point percentage of us think about that? Um, and so for Sunam um, and for that generation and continuing on, I mean, um, Seoul National University is something that is like a lottery ticket to um, this current generation in South Korea now um, to get into SNU is such a big deal. And then to um, somehow access the in-group, right, of the in-group and to find yourself um, on the fast track to national elitism, it must be so intoxicating for someone so young. I mean, 19 years old, right? Yeah, it's so funny, yeah, it's so funny too that you can tell us. It, it, it takes three years at, at Yale to figure out, oh, I can be a loser. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know. And when I found out, it, it, I was I was dumbstruck because the secret societies are secret, but they're not so secret because they're in these like buildings with no windows and you walk past, or I walked past them every single day and it never occurred to me to think oh what is that building why are there no windows what happens in there you know um just questions that i had never asked it's really interesting to me you know um korean american culture in my experience with korean american friends and colleagues is so more often than not so thoroughly permeated with yes. christianity uh, and and now i mean south korea also is sort of Unique in Southeast Asia as a Christian success story. I mean, you think about Scorsese's silence and there's just, you know, writing about, and there's writing about this really tenuous relationship between Christianity and Japanese culture. That's not been the case in South Korea. And, and, and Christianity, it's interesting because Jensen has, Jensen has this love interest early on in the book who's this like missionary, you know, from the United States and he's kind of a leftist politically. He's very uh, pious. And, and that, I mean, it's interesting. How do you see your own spirituality and, 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 and the kind of tradition you came out of in this Korean American experience? How does that shape its shape the book? Because the main characters are, are not particularly um, interested in Christianity and we don't hear much about their own spirituality. A lot. Right. Um, I absolutely agree with you that Christianity is, pervasive in Korean American and Korean culture. And it's so interesting to me personally, because this is the legacy of my family. Um, I, um, I, I forget what the terminology is, but I'm one of those people that was raised a Christian from the womb. And, um, this was a decision that was very cataclysmic for my mom to become a Christian in her youth. So she became, um, a Christian, I think, my, right before she married my father in her, in, in her twenties. And so, um, this was very disapproved of by my in-laws. And so she had to like sneak out of the house to go to church. And it's not that my, um, my grandparents were devout Buddhists, but, um, they were Buddhist to the extent that like maybe, um, culturally Christian Americans are. Um, Christian, you know, and so they, they looked upon my mom's Christianity with a lot of suspicion. And, um, and so growing up in this culture, for me, I often felt that I was like a double minority, you know, to be an evangelical Christian and also to be a Korean American. So, um, I'm in this like even smaller, um, insular bubble. And I often felt that it was limiting in my, 
um, choices to be like a free agent in life, right? And so um, one of the things that inspired me to write about it in the book was my own feelings, but also the idea of how much the West influenced the trajectory of contemporary South Korean history. I mean, as you say, in Japan, they um, strenuously rejected Western and American missionaries and violently um, set them um, out of the country. And in, in Korea, it was the opposite. And I can't say exactly why. I think it might have been because the missionaries brought um, aid, financial aid, and also educational aid that um, that Koreans were open to receiving. And then also um, post-war, um, I think that because the U.S. was such a major political um, ally, um, Korea was very open to receiving Western influence. And so I think it was one of the most, like you say, it's a Christian success story, um, one of the most um, rapidly evangelic, evangelicized countries um, in modern history. And so in some ways I feel um, a nostalgia for like the pre-Western influence South Korea. And I think that that's something that South Korea is grappling with now, that they feel that they've given away too much power to the West and particularly to the United States. And I think the current um, political candidates for the presidency that's become suddenly open, um, they're grappling with the idea of how do we say no to the United States while also protecting our national security interests? And I think that's a pretty good metaphor for how I feel about Christianity. Um, Christianity is um, so deeply a part of my personal culture. And um, to I, and I've tried to reject Christianity many times in my own personal history um, out of a sense of like, you know, fomenting for my own personal independence. But it's so deeply woven into my cultural identity that I would never be able to reject it um, fully. And so I'm, I'm grappling with an idea of how do I become um, an authentic representation of this religion that I've been raised with. Um, and so it, it's a historical and cultural question as well as a spiritual question for me. It's interesting because the title, Everything Belongs to Us, you know, comes out of early in the book, People are shouting, right? Is it right after the the riot that takes place that somebody's shouting, nothing belongs to us? Or, or um, I think the policeman says, not everything belongs to you. Not, yeah. Not, or not everything, yeah, right. Not not everything belongs to you, right? It's after Jin says uh, she's being escorted out of the um, jail and it, she's, she's furious because she wants to stay in the jail in solidarity with the working class protesters. And the cops know who she is, even though the protesters don't. And... Yeah, and, and, and so the, this, the irony of the title, like, everything belongs to us, and yet it, it's, it almost feels like nothing belongs to the main character. That, that, that they're, they feel like, it, it feels like their lives in, in different ways are all so, so out of Right, and I actually had such an interesting conversation about this with uh, a woman that came to a reading this week, and she is a senior woman from the former USSR. So maybe she's in her 60s or 70s. And she said, um, Grace, I loved the book. I hated the title. Um, and she had a visceral reaction because she felt, as you did, that nothing belongs to these characters and that everything belongs to us, um, in quotes, 
um, should should have been more clear that it was like propaganda from the government. Um, and I think from her own experience, having, you know, uh, lived in uh, communism, she felt that the government had told her and her, you know, contemporaries this, everything belongs to us. And the us is so important in the title because, as you know, like Korean, Korean culture and Korean, Korean American culture is so deeply communal that what you do um, as an individual reflects instantly on your parents, your family, your nation, your culture. And so um, this generation was was told by the government, everything belongs to us and it will belong to us as, as we work together and um, launch ourselves into the future of prosperity that that they're hoping for. Um, but the us is so deeply prob- problematic because um, what gains they were able to achieve, um, you know, obviously came at quite a steep price for the people who um, sacrificed, you know, their freedom for it. And often their, um, in some cases, even like their physical safety and their lives. Um, and the us um, as a country, they, um, became a different identity, right? Um, opening to the West and opening to this idea of um, extreme capitalism. So it is deeply sarcastic. And I think the sarcasm um, bothered this woman um, so emotionally. So yes, it's true. Everything belongs to them, but also at what price and maybe not. <laughs> My wife um, lived in Moscow for two years, um, yeah, early in her adult life. Um, and she said she used to love to go to the propaganda museum, and that <laughs> it's actually. And there's a poster of like back from the Soviet days, where like this this you know of this family looking young and happy and well fed, and the woman's like, "Oh, this was not f- no one was happy, no one was." Well-fed. They took like no, the no, one family yeah. that was looking extremely healthy at the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, it is interesting though what you bring up too, and it, maybe it's the dangers of, of over collectivized identities, and we see that. And we see it, it reflected, I think, maybe in this election cycle where, where identity politics, where people kind of, I mean, we're all vulnerable creatures, right? And so sometimes, it, you know, we have a need to belong. And so we kind of tribe up. But then, you know, you see this sort of anger and the, the anger, you know, the microaggressions and safe spaces. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's some of the tension of collective identity, right? Because in some sense, we're subjects, we're eyes. And we, and we, and we, interact on an I thou level, you know, on your, on our good days, hopefully not an I it level, but it's, yeah, there's a tension there. Yeah. And it's, um, I think that as a nation, um, in the United States, we take, um, this idea of diversity and plurality and, um, multiculturalism, which I have to put in quotes because I don't know if that's become like, um, a bygone, um, word now, but, um, I think we take that to, uh, take that for granted to a certain extent, and we take that as a bonus, and we strive for that. Whereas I think in Korea, there's not that um, history or that philosophy of multiculturalism and diversity um, as part of the fabric of like what the nation was um, built on, right? And and for actually it was the very opposite right like they were built on homogeneity and built on this sense of oneness and sameness and unity for that reason and so i think south korea um as a nation is now um 
trying to understand how they can retain that idea of cultural um, solidarity while becoming a contemporary like nation that um, embraces plurality and immigration and diversity and um, multiculturalism, right? And so it's 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 so interesting to me as somebody that is um, stuck between both Korea and America, and who I'm Korean American. I consider myself to be bicultural, um, and it's such a tense struggle, as you say, because. Um, the goals are lofty, but in practice, it's so hard to figure out like how you can um, live it out. Do you, do you have your book yeah. handy? Would you want to read um, something for us? Oh my goodness. I do not have my book handy. Yeah. Okay. You can get it. Do you mind? I'm just going to run up. Okay. I'll be right back. I don't. I don't. I don't know at all. So how long do you think I should read for? Uh, you know, maybe like, uh, you know, maybe like a t- just a page okay. or two. Two pages is fine. Right. Something that you... Something that you find, you know, that's a favorite. Okay, so this is a passage I like to read because it highlights the um, the main conflict between Chisan and Namin, who um, are coming from such different points of views and different social classes. And Chisan, as we remember, is the daughter of the um, Chebol leader who wants to let go of her privilege and become like this underground activist in the factories. And then... Um, the friend that she loves most, Namin, is the daughter of this um, food cart um, family, right? And so they could not be more different. And so this is the the fight that they're having um, as, I guess, first-year college students trying to figure out how they're going to like live out their lives. Um, here we go. Since Jizan had gotten involved with the activist groups, they barely knew anything about each other's lives. Namin accepted the distance they had drifted apart. But Chizan seemed to take for granted the fact that her life was always in flux while other people stayed put, preferably in the spot where she'd left them. When she'd found out that Damin planned to go for the circle, her brother Min's pet project that had become the university's foremost status symbol, Chizan had thrown a fit. That was months ago and they hadn't spoken since. You can't, she'd said, as if Namin had asked her permission. Namin, have you thought this through? This can't really be what you want. It's exactly what I want. But it's so elitist. You know, the circle is just a bunch of phony social climbers. You'll get in and become just like them, another stupid bourgeois sheep. Namin, no, you're better than that. Namin had laughed. Bourgeois sheep? They must be brainwashing you in those protest groups of yours. Just because I don't think like you doesn't make me a dumb animal. Don't worry about me, I'll be fine. Anyway, I could use a little elitism in my life. How can you joke about this? Chizan, obviously you don't need things like the circle. You can afford not to be such a sheep. So go ahead, spend your life marching and shouting slogans, Namin had said. But I can't. I need this. People rely on me, you know. And you think no one relies on me? Poochisan, she'd said. Who relies on you? You have no responsibilities. Everything's always been given to you. Chizan had actually stamped her foot like a child throwing a tantrum, raising a low cloud of dust over the courtyard. No responsibilities, she'd shouted. Who do you think I'm doing this for? Why should I work so hard when people like you don't even appreciate it? People like me, Namin had shouted too, forgetting to keep her voice down. The neighbors could repeat this argument word for word in the market for all she cared. 
People like me, you mean, who are helpless, who need big, powerful champions like you to fight their battles? Is that what you think you're doing? Let me get this straight. Do you actually expect me to be grateful? She'd been so angry, she wanted to smash Chizan across her smug, patronizing face. She'd wanted to knock her down and pummel her until they were both senseless, but tears were already quivering in Chizan's eyes. It had made her furious that Chizan was crying, as if this were about her sad feelings, her disappointment and the shortcomings of their friendship. I thought we relied on each other, Damien. People like me can't rely on people like you, Namin had spit out. We just call that charity. That's beautiful. And, you know, I find myself, I found myself as reading the book, like, on this, these vacillating emotional states where there's intensity, I feel like, uh, passion, whether it's passionate love or anger or frustration. And then there are these moments where I've just felt like I was emotionally sighing uh, with the characters, where there, there are just sighs, where there's just kind of like, they seem tired, worn out. Um, and, and that intensity, uh, punctuated by kind of these emotional sigh periods, um, and then more intensity, just makes for such a, <laughs> an intense uh, and beautiful reading experience. Thank you. I mean, I really I'm does. so happy to hear you say that because that's what I was hoping for. I mean, I think that... Um, oh, good. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> well, you know, I think that when you think about, you know, or at least for me, when I think about my um, late teens and early 20s, it's such a intense emotional time as you're trying to understand who you are as an adult or as a burgeoning adult. And um, that was a time of intense relationships for me, uh, friendship-wise and um, otherwise, romantic-wise, family-wise. And um, what I hoped was for readers to be able to feel and also see what both these women and also Sunam, hopefully, but but um, primarily both these women, since they are on opposite sides, um, like what their point of view is and to feel that with them and to see that they are both so right and so wrong at the same time and um, that the passion with which they're grappling um, with each other is, is out of love for each other, but also out of deep, like... Um, pride and ego and shame for themselves because they're trying to build this identity. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it would create this like, um, huge explosion and then this coming apart, as you say, where they have to like retreat to their corners and, um, lick their wounds a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like the, the historic Korean context, that's the stage for what is a really universal story about, about friendship and love and identity and loss. And it's, um, yeah, it's a great book. And thank you for spending some time talking with me about it. Oh, thank you so much. It was so my privilege and honor. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And by all means, please get a copy of Everything Belongs to Us by Grace Words. It's such a great book. And until next time, 
fare thee well. <laughs>